Welcome to another episode of MPMA's Bug Bites. I'm your host, Mike Bentley. And in this episode, I'm going to hopefully answer all of the burning questions that you've had surrounding the Asian giant hornet, the insect that has so frustratingly been referred to in most news articles as the murder hornet. For anyone out there who hasn't heard of or seen anything about the Asian giant hornet in the news, let me give you a quick overview so you know exactly what this episode is going to be about. Asian giant hornets are massive insects that can reach almost two inches in length, and they pack a very powerful sting. They're native to Asia, and they're known to prey on various species of honeybees. Sometime in late 2019, an Asian giant hornet nest was discovered in British Columbia, which sent the general public and beekeepers alike into a frenzy because of fears that this massive hornet would become established in North America and then wipe out all the European honeybee colonies, as well as potentially pose a major public health threat to people. All right, now you're all caught up. There's a lot to unpack there. We'll get to all of that in the interview, uh, but let's go ahead and get things started. When these massive insects first made national headlines in late 2019, they caught my attention just like everybody else. And just like many of you, I had a lot of questions about these hornets. But since my expertise is mostly limited to structural pests, I knew I needed to go to an actual hymenopterist or an entomologist slash bug scientist that specializes in bees and wasps to get my questions answered. Luckily, I was able to convince famed hymenopterist Dr. Lynn Kimsey to come on the podcast to answer all of my burning questions about these huge insects and provide some unique perspective on what their limited presence in the northwestern U.S. could potentially mean for the rest of the country. Dr. Kimsey is not only a renowned hymenopterist, she's also a professor of entomology at UC Davis, the director for the Center for Biosystematics, and the director for the Bohart Museum of Entomology. So, needless to say, I was beyond excited to have the chance to interview someone with Lynn's qualifications about the Asian giant hornet. While I had a long list of questions ready for Lynn, I had to get the conversation started by clearing up the naming issue that I'm obviously a little bit passionate about. First and foremost, we've got to go right out of the gate and address the name, because I hate it. Where and why did the name Murder Hornet start? Do you know? I don't. All I know is that somebody at the Associated Press started using it, and then everybody took it up and ran with it. Uh, where they got it, I, I haven't heard the history. Well, I, you know, I actually checked with the folks up there in Washington State because I was curious. You see a lot of things online about how they discovered several honeybee colonies uh, destroyed by these things. Yeah. And what they tell me is that, in fact, it's possible, but they didn't think that the hornets were involved with any of the dead colonies, that it was just sort of something that someone thought about and ran with. Uh, but so now the beekeeping industry in Washington is convinced that, that these things have been killing honeybees. But there isn't any basis in reality as far as I can tell. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of things will kill honeybees. <clears throat> you know, so um, things like this happen. But like I say, there isn't any real evidence. For example, they found a colony, but there was no evidence of a wasp or a hornet near it. There, so they're making a correlation. It's not causation. Oh, I got gotcha. you. Okay, yeah, because what I and again, I, you're far more informed on this than I am. I think that what we had assumed was that somebody found a colony that had a large number of decapitated bees, and that's what they were making the assumption based on that. 
Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I the folks in Washington State Department of Agriculture don't think so. So I'm just going with what they're telling me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it it is not called the Murder Hornet. And spoiler alert, everybody, there's a group of folks that actually come up with and determine a standard common name for insects. Not somebody from the Associated Press, and it's not based on what everybody else just decides to call something sometimes. So the (laughs) name Murder Hornet is not the official common name for this insect. The official common name is, I'm assuming it's the Asian Giant Hornet. Is that correct? Yeah. That, that's what I've, I've seen used, yeah. Yeah. From this point moving forward, we are not going to perpetuate the myth that is called the murder hornet anymore. So I will only be <laughs> referring to it as the Asian giant hornet. It, it, give me a little bit of background on this insect because, I mean, I know that it is easy to sell a story like this. It is a comically large wasp that looks terrifying. Even if you're not somebody that is you know predisposed to being scared of insects or you don't have any sort of allergy to a, a bee or a wasp sting, I mean, they, they still can be some pretty menacing-looking insects. So where did they come from, and, and where are they native to? Because we know that they don't belong here. Okay, so the Asian giant hornet is native to southern Asia. Uh, best I know, it's found from parts of India, maybe Sri Lanka, all the way into you know Japan and China. It's one of about... Mm, I don't know, uh, a dozen or more species in the genus. It's probably the largest bodied one. But I, we have them in the collection here. I've never seen one that was two inches long. People, I think people are getting a little carried away with that. About an inch and a half is pretty typical, which is that's a big animal, no question about it. Um, you know, So um, in their native range, uh, people just live with them. You know, you, you see a variety of, accommodations, I guess you'd say, and, and at least one species of honeybee that has, has uh, I don't want to be anthropomorphic, but it has a mechanism for defending its colonies against these big hornets. And that's what they call uh, balling, which sounds kind of dirty, but, but nonetheless, what will happen with, with these honeybees is that when their colony is attacked by one of these large hornets, the workers in the colony rush out and cluster on top of it, completely surrounding the hornet. And then they shiver their flight muscles, and they basically cook the hornet. So they are more tolerant of the high body temperatures than the hornet is. Even if they lose a few workers, hey, the colony survives, right? You can replace workers, and the hornet's dead. So a couple questions that come from this. So the first one is, you said when a, an individual hornet would attack a hive. So is that the case that when an individual goes out to find food, it's one one hornet will go and find its way into a hive and try to collect food? Or is it multiple hornets will come and attack? Usually the one precedes the other. Okay. So in other words, you're, you, the hornets send out workers. The workers go looking for food. And if they find, you know, usually it's... A, the workers are all foraging by themselves. If they, one of them finds a honeybee colony, what it'll probably do is try to kill a honeybee and take it back to its colony, right? And then that brings everybody else to, ooh, buffet time, right? So you have to get one worker of the hornet to bring back something to signal to the rest of the colony that this is a bonanza, they need to come and, you know, make food. Really? That's interesting. Okay, so kind of like a trophy catch that they come back and show as proof. Yeah, yeah, 
yeah, it's a way of showing that this is a good food source to recruit others in the nest. And so if the honeybees can kill that, that one forager, obviously the signal doesn't go back to the colony. Okay. Now, do they actually eat the bees themselves, or are they targeting the brood? Uh, mostly the bees. Um, they might go into the brood, but uh, that's a lot of work when you've got nice juicy honeybees right at your feet. Um, and so what most hornets, like yellow jackets, do is they'll capture live insects, sting them, and then they mash them up into sort of a meatball that they take back to the nest. So what they're mostly interested in is protein for the larvae. The adults need sugars, but not, not really nothing else uh, except maybe the queen, but the adults just need, you know, basically it's it's jet fuel. I mean, there are exceptions to all of this, but but in the vast majority of cases in social insects, and especially with the hornets and yellow jackets, um, the adults really just need, mostly just need sugar. So you said that in, in their native range that there's even some cases where honeybees, I mean, not necessarily coexist with them, but you know they're, they're not out there wiping out honeybees. I'm assuming this is not the European honeybee. This is a different species there? It is. Yeah, okay. it is. So, and, and in this case, they're not necessarily wiping out this honeybee. Does the European honeybee also exhibit this balling trait or no? No, it's a large-bodied species of honeybee. The European ones don't, don't do it and probably couldn't do it because they're too small. Uh, the one that does it is uh, half again as big as a European honeybee. Wow, okay. And so you said, and you mentioned that you know it, it's tolerated in the native range by folks that live and, and coexist with these Asian giant hornets. So is it, is it the case to where just kind of like a bald-faced hornet here? Like we know that they're here when they show up, we may have to call somebody to deal with it. But outside of that, there's no four-alarm panic that goes off and everybody runs for the hills when an Asian giant hornet buzzes through a house and breaks a window or anything, right? No, no, they just, they just take it in stride. In fact, the, the funny thing, perhaps ironic thing about this, is that the larvae and pupae of this giant hornet are considered to be delicacies. And one of my now-graduated students who works in Taiwan sent me photographs of, of a couple of plates of one was stir-fried hornet pupae and one was the larvae. <laughs> and they, people eat them. They really like them. This is wild. Have you tried one yet? No, I haven't been in the right place where they're serving them. I've been stung by related species. It's not not pleasant, but, yeah, you know. I, I work on stinging things, so it just, you know, over the years I've gotten kind of casual and careless about it, and so I periodically get stung, and, yeah. I don't think it's as bad as a tarantula hawk. Oh, my God. Have you been stung? Okay, hold on. I, I have to ask. How many insects off of Schmidt's pain scale have you checked off of the list here for things that you've been stung by? Okay. I know we're on a roll here, but I had to pause really quick just to make sure everyone listening could truly appreciate the nerdy reference being made here to the Schmidt pain scale. See, there's this incredibly fascinating entomologist named Justin Schmidt who has dedicated his entire scientific career to better understanding and categorizing the relative pain inflicted by stinging insects. Translation, this dude has been stung by pretty much every stinging insect imaginable, and he's provided a detailed account of his experiences in his official Schmidt Pain Index. The index measures the sting of 83 different insects on a scale that ranges from 1 to 4, with 1 being the least painful and 4 being the most painful. And while the system may sound pretty straightforward and basic, 
Schmidt does an amazing job of differentiating, categorizing, and describing in poetic detail the experiences that one would have while taking a ride on the insect pain train. Let me give you a few examples from Schmidt's scale and his descriptions because these are pure gold. All right, commonly encountered insects like your common paper wasp or sweat bees are going to fall into category one of the pain scale, with the sting of sweat bees being described as, and I quote, light, ephemeral, almost fruity, and a tiny spark has singed a single hair on your arm. I told you, gold, right? All right, bald-faced hornets and yellow jackets deliver a sting that falls into pain level two category, and as Schmidt describes them, would feel, quote-unquote, hot and smoky, almost irreverent. Jumping down to pain level four, the highest level of pain on the index is where you find some of the most ominously named insects on the planet, like the bullet ant, the tarantula hawk, and the warrior wasp. Schmidt's account of the warrior wasp may be my favorite, with his quoted description of the pain as torture. You are chained in the flow of lava of an active volcano. Why did I ever start this list? How great is that, right? As a thrill seeker myself, I consider this guy a legend among entomologists and enjoy his dedication to classification and categorizing insect stings too much not to offer a little bit more detail about what he's accomplished. Okay, back to the interview. I've never been stung by that big bullet ant. Uh, I don't think I have. Uh, but everything else, pretty much. I, in my book, honeybees are the worst. I mean, think about what, say, a hornet does with its sting. Most of it's for prey capture. So that sting venom is targeted mainly for invertebrates. Uh, it's used defensively, but it has to serve these two functions. Whereas with a honeybee, that stings for you. It has no other function except for vertebrates, and so it's guaranteed to hurt, to last, to make sure that the crazy monkeys and anyone else messing with the colonies remembers that this is a very bad thing to do. I never thought about it like that. <laughs> okay, so this is a, a, a good point here. Um, a question that I have written down is, I've seen a couple things that have referenced the differences in venom quantity and production in an Asian giant hornet versus, say, a European honeybee. So what can you tell me that differentiates the European or the Asian giant hornet from, say, something that is easily recognizable like a honeybee sting? Um, well, they're really, really different. So an Asian giant hornet can deliver a lot of venom, right? So part of the reason why it's so painful is because you're getting a pretty big dose and they can sting repeatedly, which, you know, honeybee stings you once and she's a goner, right? But if you don't get that thing off in a hurry, it's going to keep pumping venom in there. So I think the pain level on these things is largely dose dependent like everything else. Okay. I know that we've talked about it a little bit, but when was the first Asian giant hornet found in North America how many have been found to date, and and where? Okay, so what I understand is the very first hornet was basically a nest that was found right near the border of British Columbia and, and Washington State. Right, so everything that was found, all of the Asian hornets were found within a 50 to 60 mile uh, radius of Vancouver. And so... First, they found a colony that was killed, 
and then and that was in September, and then there was one individual wasp found a month later, and I think the last one they found was in December, if that late. And that's it. They've never been found in the, in North America otherwise. All right, so all relatively recent and all in Canada. Yeah, I think one or two individuals might have been found just across the border in Washington State. Okay. It's it's right. It's, it all happened pretty close to the, the border there. Okay. And is the assumption that all of these individuals that were found were all members of the same colony? I think they're making that assumption. That they've found no evidence of anything else. So, um, you know, a colony in September is probably producing uh, new queens. Now, I, they haven't told me what the individuals were that they found later, but my guess would be that they were new queens. Okay. And so in, in this case, new queens out looking for a mate, right? They would have to have a male in order to produce anything other than males, right? Well, they're looking for males. Of course, at the same time colonies are producing new queens, they're also producing males. So there is a chance that they were mated and then looking for a place to overwinter. Because like our hornets, uh, these guys that far north particularly form annual colonies. So, that, and that brings me to the next question. Are there other hornets that are native or at least established in North America? And how do they compare to the uh, Asian giant hornet? So as far as I understand it, there have only been three species ever found in North America. Now, about... Hmm, good hundred years ago, Vespa crabro, which is the European hornet, got introduced to the east coast of North America. It's now well established. It's found throughout the southeast. The only other record was maybe 10, 15 years ago, a colony was found of Vespa asiatica, another species, in San Pedro in Southern California. That colony was destroyed and they've never been seen since. So on the west coast, basically none anymore. So is there is there a clear temperature tolerance difference here between them? Because I noticed that you've said in both cases of these the different hornets that they've been found or they are established now in warmer regions of the country. I don't think of Washington State as a particularly warm region of the country. So is the is the Asian giant hornet more cold tolerant? No, I don't think so. I think it's just the luck of the draw. I mean, think about this. These things probably, an animal that big, probably came over in a cargo container, you know, in one of these cargo ships across the Pacific. So I looked into how many of those come to the West Coast annually. I only looked at one port, and that was the Port of Oakland. The Port of Oakland gets one million cargo containers a year. One million. Okay, so that's, that's one port. That's not the Port of Long Beach. That's not Vancouver. And so the chances, just statistically, the odds of one of these things making it successfully to the West Coast is pretty darn low. But if you're talking about, you know, two or three million cargo containers a year, statistically, you're bound to find one occasionally, you know, or, or anything else. I mean, it could be gypsy moth eggs. It could be, you know, a, a variety of these things. So the fact that we find so few of these animals is kind of astonishing. So it almost speaks to the ability of 
these ports to be able to quarantine, eliminate, and manage the goods that are coming in to ensure that we don't have another red imported fire ant situation? Or No, no. It, it's not physically possible. At best, my colleagues in the USDA and California Department of Agriculture tell me that at best, they can inspect 10% of the cargo containers and ships. So they do the best they can, but there isn't enough money on earth or time to be able to inspect all of those. So think about this. You know, with the coronavirus shutdown, we've actually stopped transportation of exotic pests. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, so it's like going to the casinos in Vegas and betting. You know, eventually you're going to earn some money. Eventually one of these individuals is going to make it. Uh, but the chances are pretty slim. So, and it sounds like random happenstance that this thing happened to be in a cargo ship. It happened to be the right time of year where they were able to survive. And chances are, I mean, if it was found in September and, it, and the colony was already there, then they probably showed up during the warmer months. So, I mean, that even makes it even less likely from what I'm, I'm hearing that they would even be able to survive a winter if they did, if there was a queen that made it out somewhere. Oh, I think they, I think they probably could because, like I say, they form annual colonies. Okay. So very much like our yellow jackets or the bald-faced hornet, the colonies pretty much end in the fall. And then the, the overwintering queens go off, find a nice hidey hole, hope they don't freeze or, you know, get killed by something during that period and then come out in the spring to start a new colony. So they're kind of pre-adapted for very strong seasonality for, for bad winters. So I don't think that's the problem. I think this, but it limits when they can actually get a colony established, you know, soon enough to be able to produce overwintering queens and males. Okay. So, is there any other hornets that are out there that would look pretty similar that would be commonly misidentified as the Asian giant hornet? Well, a lot of people go by size and or color. And so um, the cicada killer, the, the wasp in the genus Theseus, is one that, that people have confused with this because it, it is roughly the same size and color. Um, I've gotten pictures of paper wasps and genus Polistes. Um, uh, Jerusalem crickets, because there's a strong resemblance in the head, right? Uh, yes, they're wingless, but <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it gets worse because my my colleague up in Washington State mentioned he one-upped me on this one. I thought the Jerusalem cricket was the worst, but somebody apparently sent him a photograph of dog vomit, claiming that the dog threw up because it had eaten one of these things, and all he could see was grass. Oh man. <laughs> Oh, I love people. So I think partly it's just people have way too much time on their hands. Yeah, L lots of time at home right now. Lots of time to look up things like oh. this and, and panic. Well, and I think people are getting a little stir crazy, and you know, you gotta, yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like maybe the headlines have mischaracterized a pest. So are things just being blown a little bit out of proportion? I mean, oh yeah, no, it's it, it's totally out of proportion. Um, you know, but, but it's a large, scary-looking insect, and it stings, and so it's, you know, you can understand people's natural reactions or get panicky about it. Uh, but at this point, we have no evidence that there are any of them remaining on the West Coast or anywhere else, except 
Asia. And maybe Americans should start thinking about how yummy they are. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's a it's a much easier protein source to harvest than, than a lot of the other protein sources, that's for sure. I've got I've got well, a couple friends you know, that work on that that cricket flour protein. Oh god, that's no, I, that's nasty. I I can't. <laughs> you don't support the cricket flour protein? No, and the reason why is because um, there's something about it's sort of a an odor flavor that crickets have oh, yeah. that just reminds me way too much of cockroaches. Oh yeah, that's... and yes, I've I've eaten a cockroach. I didn't intend to, but I was at a field station in Panama, and the cook went out of his way to make a, a special treat for us, and he made oatmeal cookies with raisins in them. And I took a big bite out of my oatmeal cookie, and then I looked at it and realized that the raisin I'd just bitten in half had legs. Oh, gosh. And, yes, they taste very much like they smell. Oh. <laughs> and so I, cricket flour, just anything made from cr- cricket flour, to me, has that cockroach funk i guess you'd call it you know i don't know how to describe it but uh yeah i'm not a fan now mealworms sure silk moth caterpillar larvae sure but mm, yeah not crickets <laughs> that's a pretty impressive <laughs> list just, of bugs you've eaten i i mine's not that long <laughs> oh no mealworms are really good <laughs> yeah see i haven't i've done i've done the uh dried mealworms and i i try to be a pretty good sport about it you know my family's pretty good at uh Anytime they find the novelty bag of, of fried crickets and dried bugs and everything, they always get it for me. And the the latest batch was a stocking stuffer that was, you know, barbecue flavored and sriracha flavored bags of freeze dried crickets. And yep. uh, I got to yep. tell you, usually you can find some where they knock all the bad bits off, you know, the legs and yep. the antenna. Yeah, the little These, pokey bits. Oh, yep. the pokey bits that really, really make sure that you know that you are eating an insect. And yeah, this last yeah. bag had all the bad bits on it. I mean, the Cersei, the legs, the <laughs> spines, the, and it is not an enjoyable snack. I, I tried to tell my parents I enjoyed it, but uh, I, I guess they'll find out now. I did not like it, and I don't want it again. See, see, so. you're, just, you're just feeding the beast by lying about that because oh, they're going to get you more. <laughs> That's a good point. I told you I'm not a very smart person. This is this is clearly well. We actually we have a little gift shop and we actually sell those here. So I've tasted all of them. And I'm just not like I say. I'm just not a fan of the crickets yeah. at all. <laughs> yeah, there. I I'm I'm on board with that. Like I said, I, I've had some stuff that's made from the cricket flour that's not been too bad because it's baked and you can't really tell. But <clears throat> the whole freeze dried crickets is is not my bag. No, no. I, yeah, but I would actually really like to try these dishes made from the giant hornet pupae and larvae. They actually look really good. But we'll see. Oh, you know, the other thing I was going to tell you is there is another possible mechanism for the hornets to have gotten introduced. Really? And that is, yeah, and that is that uh, there are records of people trying to smuggle the nests into the country because they like to eat them. So they're smuggling live larvae and pupae into the country. So it's possible, if however remote, that this is one way it got in. Uh, they're not really sure, but, but but either that or cargo containers, you know, cargo ships, both are probably equally possible. Man, I I, I don't even I don't even have a response to that. People are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> how, no, no, how? But you, but you know, people would do that if somebody if it's considered a delicacy. Heck yeah. Well, see, I'm used to people bringing things in for pet trade. So I, I'm originally oh. from South Florida, and so uh-huh. you know. 
every year something new and weird pops up and it's mostly you know i mean our our waterways have peacock bass in them that are native to the amazon we've got you know iguanas and every single unique lizard you could possibly imagine down below fort lauderdale and it's because <laughs> people bring them in either they smuggle uh-huh. them as a pet or they release them so they can then capture them and sell them on the pet trade i yeah, am no, not prepared though to hear that somebody's bringing something in as a food source like a asian giant hornet and that it accidentally got away well, again, you, you know, you're back to Vegas odds. Statistically, it's bound to happen eventually. The other thing about them is that the, you know, you got to figure the nests are going to be pretty obvious. Yeah. <laughs> but they don't make freestanding nests usually uh, like, say, the bald-faced hornet does. Uh, they build nests in cavities. Uh, but you're still going to – it's going to be obvious when you've got – insects over an inch long flying in, in and out of a hole <laughs> oh yeah now pre-existing cavity or is this going to be something where they would excavate on their own usually they use a they start with a pre-existing cavity and then enlarge it okay and it's subterranean or is this pretty much anything so they'll take a burrow they'll take a tree hole they'll take a hole in an attic yeah yeah pretty much as far as i understand it's very much like some of our yellow jackets I mean, let's face it, if you're a homeowner and you've got these big thundering things going in your attic, you're going to know it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, people panic over uh, a couple paper wasps flying in and out of the corner of a soffit 100 feet up in the air. I mean, if they hear magnificent two-inch long um, Asian giant hornets <laughs> bumbling around up there in their attic, they're going to know it for sure. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So I, I'm certainly not encouraging anybody to put themselves in harm's way to try to collect a specimen. But if somebody does encounter a dead specimen or they do collect something they suspect to be the Asian giant hornet, what is the best way to go about reporting that sighting? Do they need to go to your website and find your, your mailing address? Oh, they can go to us or their local extension office or Department of Agriculture. If they send a picture, people... People could look at it and tell for sure. Okay, great. So don't don't have to physically collect the specimen. If it's dead, great. If no. not, just getting a photo sometimes can be enough. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. And, and the thing is, these things, they don't kill very many people in Asia. You really have to mess with a nest to get stung. They're, they're not aggressive in the field. So if you find one visiting flowers or even coming into your honeybee colony, um, it's not going to go out of its way to sting you. They just don't do that. Oh, okay. That's I, I did not even realize that. Yeah, I just I just naturally assumed that they would rate higher on that aggressive scale. I mean, where where would you put them in terms of you know we think of the European honeybee is not very aggressive, um, very tolerant of people. You know, some ground nesting bees kind of the same way. Paper wasps maybe a little bit more aggressive and defensive, but they still have to be kind of poked and prodded. And then once you get to the bald faced hornet, you know, it's no holds barred wrestling match. As long as you're not near a nest, no. Well, okay. I think in Asia, more people are killed by feral dogs than by Asian hornets. I mean, it, they're really, it, it's the nest you have to worry about, but that's true of yellow jackets and almost anything else. Is They are going to defend their nest, but as just individual foragers, you have to do something like catch them to get stung. I mean, where I, I worked in Indonesia for a while, and there's a related species, and in our camps, the native honeybees would come in to collect sweat, and the hornets would come in to collect the bees that were collecting the sweat, and <laughs> nobody ever got stung except by a honeybee. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And that's because they stepped on it in bare feet. So, you know, these things really, it's not like a rabid dog or anything like this. They just don't, 
there's really nothing in it for them to attack a random human being unless the nest is threatened. And that's when people get stung. So, you know, if you see one flying around, fly swatters work. <laughs> Shoes work. <laughs> Butterfly nets. That's what I use, but, you know. There you go. <laughs> well, is, is there anything else that you could think of that you would want people to know? Um, just to sit down, take a deep breath and not panic because there, there's really no reason to do it. I mean, there just really isn't any reason to panic over these things. A, they're not here, and B, even if they were, I'd say 99% of the population would never see one. Just crazy people like me going out there to find them and get stung. <laughs> it is worth mentioning that since this interview was recorded, another Asian giant hornet was found dead on the side of the road in Washington State. So, this was yet another, albeit rare, sighting of the Asian giant hornet found in the U.S. since the first colony was destroyed. And, the individual that was found was in fact a queen. But, these facts still fall in line with exactly what Dr. Kimsey was saying during her interview. Her estimation was that if more individuals were in fact found after that colony was destroyed, that they would likely be queens that had left the original nest. Which is the exact scenario that has played out so far. And while you can never really always say never when it comes to insects, the latest sighting still doesn't change the fact that it is highly unlikely for the Asian giant hornet to become an established threat here in the United States. I hope you enjoyed this episode of MPMA's Bug Bites. If you liked what you heard, be sure to like and subscribe to the channel so you don't miss the release of our next episode. And if you have an idea or a topic that you're interested in hearing more about, let me know and we may choose your idea for a future podcast. To submit your feedback, email me directly at mbentley at I'd love to hear what you have to say.